The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 27 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Feeling wild like a grifter, because he's one cool cat. I'm Adam. And wondering if at this point, Alan Moore has become more beard than man. I'm Michael. (laughs) And back on the show tonight, because he's got stories to tell us, it's Stephen Sapellus. Oh, that's a good one. I haven't heard that one yet. (laughs) But, you know, there's another reason we asked Stephen to join us, because this episode, we are actually announcing the details of Wizards, the Patreon Guide two comics that is right we announced this on episode 25 is something that was in the works and we are putting the details together for you now getting ready for launch so what we are calling this is our wizards cool core and for those of you who don't remember that was a failed fan club that wizard tried to start in the early days (laughs) oh good so we're choosing a failed fan club name to be our patreon name (laughs) we're the ones who are gonna make it work guys i'm telling you but yeah steven's gonna be a part of of this which is very exciting so we're going to explain the three tiers to you and then we will give you the launch details as they arrive in later episodes so michael why don't you start with the first tier tier number one is poofs pals which is three dollars a month and unedited episodes will be posted the monday after they are recorded one week early Ooh, that's cool exclusive access to hosts for comic conversations on patreon and exclusive contest giveaways interesting what kind of giveaways hey yeah and uh, here's the thing so poof for those of you who don't remember we're trying to be clever here poof is the official wizard of wizard magazine for many years we're giving him his due once again we're bringing him back here so also then the next tier is something special and this is the tier that steven is participating in so the next tier is called crystal's cronies for five dollars a month you get all the poofs pals perks try saying that (laughs) plus a monthly superhero movie review with michael and steven and that's what i'm super excited about why don't you explain a little bit about what the plans are for that, Stephen? So basically what we've been talking about is that we would start with the kind of kickoff of the 90s superhero movie mini boom with the 1989 Batman movie. And then we would go year by year from 1990 through 1999, pick one movie per year and have the Patreon supporters choose what movie we review. So if you want Michael to get grossed out, I recommend Darkman's 2 and 3. Now, are you, are you going to force me to watch these? only on vhs though i have them on dvd now actually they were a christmas present so i'm super oh, good excited. oh yeah. good so, so I'm, i was just wondering like am i gonna have to go find all these vhs cassettes of these 90s films and watch them there <laughs> on a 13 inch black and white monitor or something like that that i can find somewhere that would be ideal but it won't torture you that much <laughs> 
Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and also included in this uh, in this tier is the monthly patron selected topic bonus video, watcher Q and A, collectibles reveal, etc. Yeah. So the idea is that you, as the patrons, you as Crystal's cronies, should you choose to throw five bucks our way each month, you'll actually get to select what type of video you want us to make. So if yeah, you know, we have all our different types of videos that we're presenting on the YouTube page right now. But if you have something you want to see, there's a burning question. You're just like. What is that thing on your wall? You gotta show it to me. You gotta, t- or whatever it is. We will get into it, and that will be exclusively for our patrons at that level. Now, disclaimer: this is not only friends. This is Patreon, so we'll be doing no nudes. I promise you. That. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were in all our money, Michael. We were so close. People thought we were going to be the hunk of the month every month. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. So the final tier, though, if you want to be a big dog, if you want to be a big cheese, for just $7 a month, you get all the Poofs Pals and Crystal's Cronies perks. Plus, you will take part in an exclusive live video conference chat with fellow Big Cheese patrons and, hey, us, the Wizards hosts. So each month, we'll get together to have a conversation. It's basically like your own private podcast. It's your opportunity to build a community here, and if you guys want to share it we'll maybe find a way to do that but it's basically you get to have all of our attention for like a half hour we'll have a fun conversation it'll be great to uh, get together with you so those are some pretty exciting things if you like what you're hearing get ready for wizards the patreon guide to comics we will give you like i said the details of how you can subscribe soon but we just wanted to whet your appetite there and uh, give you some ideas of what's to come now before we get into our first segment we actually have one more surprise announcement you know michael and i have been doing this show for a year but it feels like there's been something missing you know we have great listeners we have awesome support from the retro network even connections to actual wizard staffers which is fantastic so what more could we need well here's what it comes down to a dynamic duo is great but a titanic trio is even better and so steven sapelis we would like to extend to you the call to be the third official co-host of the wizards podcast steven the call is for heroism will you accept the charges of course wow that's amazing thank you guys yeah, we've been uh, we've been talking about this for a while, and we just feel like you to us are like family to us, and you you're with us. We, we talk to you all the time. You add so much to our shows, and we love the dynamic the three of us have together. And we thought, what better way to start 2021 but inviting you to be a part of this journey with us? Well, I'm honored. I like you know I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and to just talk to you guys every week will be so much fun. It just like with you guys yeah for sure we're very excited you'll be happy to know as well you are being added to the official show art as we speak oh, so you will be immortalized wow <laughs> Wow, Eric Johnson, right? That's yes. right. Eric is taking care of that once again. He does wonderful work. So we will unveil that soon enough. Next episode on episode 28, you'll be able to check that out, everybody, as he takes his official seat here with us. But, you know, back in the day, to give that type of news, what did we have to do? You had to send a letter of congratulations, an offer, right, to join the team. So that means it's time that we go back to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. So our first letter comes from 
Doug Goldstein, who's at it again. This edition of the Magic Words opens with a letter from Mr. Goldstein, who continues to clarify his position on this mutants versus man of metal conversation. And we'll see what this has to say. First of all, there's a, a picture of Iron Man. Not really the best picture they could have chosen. It kind of looked like fathead Tony Stark <laughs> Iron Man. I don't know. And it says, you can't handle the truth. I guess A Few Good Men was, was coming out. So that must have been the, the way they went with that one. But okay, here's the letter. Let's start this letter column off with a letter from a broken man <laughs> on a topic which has become all too familiar to readers of Magic Words. All right, everybody, I'm going to try and put an end to this Iron Man versus X-Men debate. I admit that Iron Man cannot beat the X-Men. There are too many of them for him to beat all by himself. However, Iron Man could definitely defeat any X-Guy one-on-one with the exception of Phoenix, Professor Xavier, Psylocke, and perhaps kitty pride if she got lucky when she phases she shorts out machines you know those three aside but that's more than three that's four (laughs) skills okay anyway those three aside iron man could probably take on huge numbers of x-men at once let's be realistic though i don't care how cool you may think wolverine is there's no way he could beat iron man by himself shellhead okay <laughs> it is one of the Marvel Universe's most powerful heroes. He stands beside such legitimate powerhouses as Thor and the Hulk and has defeated huge foes like Ronan the Accuser. The X-Men really haven't gone up against people more powerful than ninjas with guns or mutants from the future. In the end, however, everything I've said really doesn't matter. If the X-Men were actually ever to take on Iron Man, the writer of the story would have whoever he wanted to win as long as it advanced his story. Doug Goldstein. Is this the end? He says he's trying to put an end to it. Will it be the end after all these months? I find that hard to believe. (laughs) I find that very hard to believe. But didn't it seem like this, the last time when he did his top 10 reasons Iron Man could beat the X-Men, he wasn't trying. This time he's like, can we please stop talking about it? Okay. But ultimately it's whatever the writer wants to do. Whatever his agenda is but i find it weird that he thinks that psylocke could be iron man i don't i find that hard to believe psychic knife through his helmet i guess i don't know i find that hard to believe (laughs) but i I feel like you know of the uh, i mean if i i haven't really weighed in too heavily on this over the last year because we've talked about it so much but i feel like honestly the only people that could theoretically beat iron man would be gene gray or phoenix whichever you want to call her and professor x and maybe magneto beyond that i don't think anybody else could in my opinion well i feel like nobody's brought up colossus the iron man versus the metal man and how would colossus hold up to iron man and how would iron man hold up to a beating from colossus like you guys are really giving a lot of credit to iron man i'm sorry at this point in history iron man sucked like his <laughs> he did was suck. boring Yes, it was, he was, it was not... like it was canceled by this point, wasn't it? Or almost oh, yeah. canceled. Pretty darn close, yeah. Definitely. Well he yeah, was appearing in Force Works pretty soon, so yeah, it must have been canceled. Yeah, and like, you know, the animated series wasn't very good. At this point, I think 
like my brother who loved Iron Man was more into War Machine, and he subscribed to the War Machine comic, really? and he was over Iron Man. So I like I don't know why at this point in history, you know, Doug Goldstein decided to defend Iron Man so hard because no one gave a crap about him. Yeah, but history proved him correct ultimately. Well, Robert Downey Jr.'s charismatic performance <laughs> proved yeah. him correct. But, but it was one of those things where, like, when the MCU first started, everyone was like, "You're going out the gate with Iron Man, like, really?" And lo and behold, then they casted Robert Downey Jr. And everyone was like, "This makes total sense now." Yeah, yeah. At no point did we in the '90s think Iron Man would be the center character of a you know multi-billion-dollar franchise. Yeah, it's true. So we have another letter, Stephen. What is the next letter, and who's it from? So in the Ask the Wizard section, the question says, "Are there new Star Wars movies coming out?" This is from Jay Weeks of Portsmouth, Rhode Island, uh, and the answer says George Lucas has stated in interviews that the first of three more Star Wars movies, which take place before the original Star Wars trilogy, will be released by the year 2000. We all know how those went. <laughs> yeah, well, there's so many movie predictions in these Wizards, and this is one that actually did come true, so that's kind of exciting to see. Yeah. Now, but Steven, you are somebody who was so ready for the prequels. You were just, in the anticipation, during, it was, did it start this early in your life? In 1993, were you waiting for more Star Wars? I was not. I had seen Star Wars as a kid. It didn't really grab me until like eighth grade. So this I was in about seventh grade, I want to say, when this issue came out. And then like the following year, I got super into Star Wars and was, you know, devouring every little hint of movie news and then camped out for 17 hours for tickets. Wow. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the decade, in front of the Syosset Theater. I'm not sure if you know that one, Michael. The... I do know it. I drove past it actually yesterday, funny enough. Oh, it's like a gymnasium now, right? Yeah. yeah. I say gymnasium like I'm a 1930s <laughs> weightlifter. <laughs> and guys, in case you were worried, yes, now that Steven is part of the show, we will be having more Long Island tangents. Yes. Sorry. But yeah, all no... Long Island tangents from now on, going forward. <laughs> But I do remember them starting to kind of drop little hints about the upcoming Star Wars prequels uh, in in like the pages of Wizard. Like I remember that the big rumor was that Kenneth Branagh was going to play Obi-Wan uh, and there was talk about Mark Hamill possibly playing Obi-Wan. Uh, so there were a lot of rumors that we were kind of following. And yeah, is this like the earliest announcement of it in, in Wizard? That yeah, you guys... I mean, I, we've never really seen much about Star Wars or no, new movies happening. So, I mean, this was, this was a big thing. That's why I thought it was worth bringing up. Is it was still several years out, but there it was. There was a promise, and he made good on it. Like you said, Lucas did it. For better or worse. He did it all right. <laughs> all right, now the next letter here, just real quick, this is kind of a fun reveal about the Max, which is a fun fact I don't know how many of our listeners are aware of here, but this writer here, his name is Brain Crew. I don't know if his name was Brian Crew and they printed it wrong, or if that is like his handle online back in the day in the early days, Brain Crew. But he says, I think that the Max is a rabbit. One. Mr. Gon calls Max Br'er Lapin. Lapin is French for rabbit. Or how about two? In Max number two, page seven, Mr. Gon calls Max Hopping Boy. Or three, in the same issue on page 18, Mr. Gon asks Julie Winter who her spirit animal is and what it looked like and what its name was. And finally, four, look at that guy. He looks like a bunny rabbit. Look at those teeth. Look on the cover of issue three. Those are really ears, not his claws. 
And Wizard confirms, actually, in his first appearance in Comico Primer number five, the Max was a rabbit. Huh? What? <laughs> Interesting. We, we don't know what, like, he's got a weird costume to begin with, but apparently he was a rabbit. And uh, maybe when he went over to Image, the guy said, uh, Sam Keith, you got to chop those ears off, buddy. <laughs> Speaking of rabbits, though, I know you're a big fan of Captain Carrot. I at right? least recognize him for his, his craziness. Yeah, we were talking offline about a particular DC issue, yeah. So DC has been heavily featuring Captain Carrot in everything related to the multiverse and with DC's death metal right now. Like, he's literally the entire story for, like, two books. Whoa. And it's really interesting. It's actually really good. I was like, whoa, this is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like it. Oh, my God. I completely forgot about Captain Carrot until this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it was a weird era, right? Because that was, like, during, like, the, you know, spectacular Spider-Ham era where they had that whole universe and it seemed like DC wanted to respond in kind. Yeah. His his team is called the Zoo Crew, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that does it for Willie Lumpkin's mailbag, and now it's time to get into our table of contents here. Now, the cover of this issue, I have to say, is one of the more iconic. Really, anytime Jim Lee is back doing a cover, it's going to be so, but he's back so quickly. I mean, back in issue 25, he just gave us a Deathblow cover. We got a Mark Bagley in between. Now Jim Lee gets the cover again? Like, this is, this is Jim Lee's end of the year here. I mean, it's a big time for him, but he in his interview reveals that he is now giving his full attention to Wildcats. He said readers were getting kind of confused. I guess in the early miniseries there was a lot of time jumps and the storytelling was not linear. He says it's streamlined now and I've slightly redesigned the outfits for the team. For example, Voodoo, quote, her original costume was an exotic dancing costume. So I just basically said, if I were Voodoo, what would I get rid of? So the big furry boots went... <laughs> okay. So there you go. Then he also he proposes a really cool idea as far as because he basically said, you know, I'm not interested in doing gimmicks. It's not really where I want to take the book or I don't feel it's necessary or anything like that. But he says here, actually, I'm still toying around with the idea of jumping ahead and doing issue number 25. And in issue number 25 of Wildcats, you would have a cover price of like $12 because that's like what it would be in like two years. He laughs. It would have had have ads from the future so you could buy your virtual reality Wildcats game and there will be ads for Wildcats cartoons sort of like 1963 which we're going to talk about in a little bit in reverse in this issue some of the Wildcats will still be around with scars and missing limbs and stuff and some will be gone and they'll be referred to in the past tense the idea would be that the rest of the storyline would lead up to this issue and when I get to issue 24 I'll skip issue 25 and go right to issue number 26 that would be the only way I would kill characters I would want to do it cleverly, like that. That feels like a gimmick to me. That's a pretty good gimmick. I actually like that idea. Work backwards, essentially. I mean, I think he's actually done that a few times since he's been at DC. Is like they'll tell a future story or like they'll tease future events. Like I don't know if he. I know he did something with Batman six 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 where they they you know I don't know if he told it or Grant Morrison did it where they do like a Damian Wayne in the future is Batman evil and how they got to that point type of thing. It's it's a trope that's kind of been played, but I wonder if this was maybe his first 
idea where he kind of thought it up. Like this might work somehow, somewhere down the line. Yeah, very much so. It sounds like it was on his uh, on his to do list, and he got it done. Now, also, uh, Travis Cherist is a name I am not familiar with, but he gets a lot of lip service in this interview. Is like this budding star artist who's going to be drawing Wildcat stories for Homage Studios. And so the question I have for you is, Michael, is that a name at all that like still in today's market, Travis Cherist? Has he got any acclaim? It doesn't ring a bell. I, I mean, he could be, at, you know, on some indie books. You know, maybe he's at, I don't know, at DC and Marvel, he's not familiar. And the image books that I do read today, I don't recognize that name. I could look it up. Maybe I can see something. It's, it seems like mostly he does do indie books these days, and his main work was on, you know, Wildcats. But, you know, when we talked about that Wildcats X-Men crossover last uh, episode, he actually did that. So he, he was part of that. But but he, he basically just said, I'm, I'm flattered that everybody says that my art looks just like Jim Lee's. So that may have been it. We already have a Jim Lee. We didn't need another Jim Lee. But also in the mix here, the the interview halfway through, it switches over to the fact that Jim Lee has hired Steve Gerber, who created who? Howard the Duck. That's right. Created Howard the Duck. But now he's writing Wildcats, a Wildcats yearbook, uh, which is kind of like their annual. And the article turns into this whole conversation about creator rights and how, you know, that's why the image guys left Marvel to form their own company and Steve Gerber was like the original creator rights guys because he sued Marvel in the 70s tried to get the rights to Howard the Duck for himself saying I created it 100% it's not based on any editorial decision I just put him in an issue of man thing he belongs to me and so that was like a big deal all through the 70s but as we get into that conversation we have some uh oh damage control As Gerber states, quote, the whole question of work for hire became equated with child molestation on a moral basis. It really isn't like that. There are fair work for hire agreements, and there are grossly unfair work for hire agreements. Mr. Gerber, no one compares those two things ever. I promise you. Yeah. <laughs> no. You don't bring that up in conversation. No. Oh, by the way, Travis cherished. The last yeah. thing he did of, of note was the Wildcats reboot in 2009. Okay. And he's got a book out. I don't know if it's still running or not called Space Girl. Uh, the, it's again from 2009. The art is really, really, really nice, but I've never heard of the book at all. It's definitely was done in an indie publisher. Maybe he even self-published it. I'm not really sure. It doesn't say... Okay. Well, if any of you are Travis Cherist fans out there, you can put us in our place. Tell us what we need to check out. Uh, but it sounds like his legacy is very much tied to Jim Lee and all the Wildcats. Now, uh, very quickly here, we get our first mention of Bongo Comics in a full-page ad. And Steven, what can you tell us? What are Bongo Comics? Bongo Comics was the Simpsons line of comics, and I loved it. I was in on this comic book from, you know, day one. I'm probably reading about it in the pages of Wizard, because I know not too long after this, it got a cover. Uh, yeah, literally, story. it's next issue, and oh, okay. I can't wait. I am so excited to talk in more depth about Bongo Comics. It's great, and especially the Radioactive Man comics were so good, and did basically what Jim Lee was just talking about, Jumping forward issues, showing issues from the past, and then, like, you know, jumping to 
issue number 55, like the death of Fallout Boy or whatever. So it was a really creative, fun, innovative comic book. Michael, did you ever pick up a Simpsons comic? Uh, not that I recall. I mean, I'm sure I like skimmed through it at the comic book shop, but it was one of those things where I'm like, I was weird. Well, I am weird. But basically it was sort of like, I don't know if I want to read this because I can watch the cartoon. Not... <laughs> Not thinking deeper that, like, there could be different stories that they could tell in the comic. And I just never picked that. I do remember seeing covers of Radioactive Man and think that was pretty cool. But it just wasn't my point of view where I would target. We'll, we'll get into it more uh, next episode and we'll see just how excited we can get you about maybe going back to revisit some Bongo comics. <laughs> Give them a second chance. But as reported a few issues back, Dark Dominion was a book by Defiant that Jim Shooter said he had wrangled the legendary Steve Ditko to draw. You know, it was like his big return, you know? Steve Ditko, what's he doing? Oh, he's working for Defiant. He's got a new book. Doctor Strange for the 90s, it was called. But apparently that fell through because there is a full page ad in this issue announcing that Len Wein is now writing that book instead of Jim Shooter. And somebody named Joe Phillips is penciling, which is not Steve Ditko. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really odd, and Wizard seems to have no quality control in this because Dark Dominion is still featured in the Hot Picks section as one of the premier books, listing Steve Ditko as the artist and Jim Shooter as the writer. Are you surprised? I feel like, you know, they're like, we pumped out a 234-page book. I don't know if anyone's going to notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's one of those things where it's like, well, I guess it's just uh, dead on arrival at that point. You build up the buzz, then you just yank the rug out from everybody. Bummer. Yeah. Now, I know that you're somebody who enjoys the classic artists, Stephen. Did you ever, like, know of Steve Ditko work that was happening, you know, in the late 80s and 90s? Not really. I think at this point, like, I knew about him from reading in Wizard. And then, like, when I was in college, I remember a friend of mine was like, we were walking around the streets of Manhattan. And he goes, you know, Steve Ditko lives around here. And he's a recluse. I was like, that guy doesn't leave the house at all. <laughs> uh, so that was the first, like, I didn't really know the legend of Steve Ditko until much later. So it, it wasn't it wasn't really on my radar in the 90s. Everyone knew the name, but I was like, I didn't it didn't really mean anything to me till probably much much later in my life not 10 11 years old or so 12 years yeah, old yeah he's, he's definitely a, a name that I didn't encounter until I got into comics history and I was like ah okay but he's you know he certainly yeah he wasn't getting the ink very much in wizard except for what he was and now no more reason to do so but speaking of defiant because soon enough there won't be anything to say about defiant uh, in wizard news we get clarification on the timeline of this plasm versus plasma lawsuit to really get an understanding okay what was going on there because i kind of had a misconception that it had gotten all handled before they released it in warriors of plasm everything was fine after that but what it says here is that originally marvel agreed to settle for the addition of the words warriors of being added to the cover to differentiate the books, but then sued Defiant again because they said, quote, the logo seems to be pasted on and is smaller than and colored differently from the rest of the emblem. 
<laughs> it's just like, wow, you didn't do it well enough. We told you, you know, <laughs> the other interesting thing about this is that Jim Shooter gives his response. And he says, quote, it's difficult to conceive how Marvel believes that our trademark title named for the world of Plasm or the trademark Warriors of Plasm infringes on a UK character called Plasmer, the hero of a book which has yet to be published. <laughs> it says, quote, it is easier to believe that they are simply concerned about our fast takeoff in a market they dominate. They are aggressive competitors and turf warriors, and this type of spoiler behavior right at the beginning of our launch is a classic Marvel technique. We intend to fight this in both the courts of law and public opinion. So apparently uh, Marvel just kept it going, kept it going. Now, just for clarification, Plasmer, as they said, is a Marvel UK book about a, quote, muscle-bound female who could transform herself from solid rock to vaporous gas. Quite a concept. Quite a concept. Uh, and we're hoping to review this for Robin's Reading Rainbow. So if we can find a copy, we're going to tell you if Plasmer has any any connection at all to the world of Plasm, which I told you about a while back. I'm I'm working on trying to find the book. So if we can find it, we will uh, we will review it painstakingly. We will have one more update for you in a special bonus episode that's coming soon where Jim Shooter is actually interviewed on camera and gives the verdict of these lawsuits. So that'll be very interesting. We'll discuss that more. But speaking of more, there is an interview here, the first interview with Alan Moore, acclaimed comics writer, in an article called The Unexplored Medium. Speaking of a recluse. Yeah. <laughs> is he a recluse or is he just a grumpy bearded man? Could be both. Probably <laughs> but Alan Moore reveals his origins of getting into creating comics at the age of 16 doing funny animal comic strips for a local papers called Roscoe Moscow and Maxwell the Magic Cat. Uh, can you imagine that the, the man who brought us, you know, Watchmen and V for Vendetta was doing funny animal strips? Everybody's got to start somewhere. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the it's like the inverse of Rorschach. It's, it's the Funhouse Mirror version of him. And uh, after getting a few scripts purchased by 2000 AD, which was you know this big British comics magazine and Doctor Who magazine, he was offered a chance to update Marvel Man for Warrior magazine, who had recently obtained the rights to publish the character we know in the states. Eventually, got published as Miracle Man and started out as the British continuation of the Shazam Captain Marvel stories when they stopped being published you know, after DC won all their lawsuits and Fawcett decided to go out of business. So now this is interesting. Moore reveals that he writes comics because in keeping with the title of the article, it's a new medium that still has yet to be defined after just 60 years really of existence in a major sense at this point. So he could break ground on new ideas as opposed to novels which have been written, you know, for centuries. And I think I think his career really speaks to that. I mean, how many doors did he break down in terms of what was acceptable in comics and the acclaim that a comic story could receive? Stephen, for you, is there a particular Alan, Alan Moore story that stands out? Or, or are you a fan? 
I mean, obviously, like everybody, that Watchmen comic is just, you know, the top tier comic book. You can give that to somebody who doesn't like comic books at all, and they can walk away from that loving it or getting something out of it. So it's really hard to top Watchmen. I think it's, you know, you read that statement where he says, you know, film has his, has a Citizen Kane and, and comics don't have that. And you're like, well, I guess he's, he comes off as cocky, but the guy really did do it. I mean, Watchmen is one of the definitive comic book stories. So that's where it lands for me. And speaking of Watchmen, you know, it's really interesting is he mentions that he turned down the opportunity to write the script for a Watchmen movie that was supposed to be directed by Terry Gilliam. I mean, if you want to get a movie made, don't give it to Terry Gilliam. <laughs> Man of La Mancha, whatever he was, the Don Quixote movie, you know, that was, I mean, he, he got 12 monkeys out, you know, we got that at least. But uh, Moore said that Watchmen is practically unmakeable as a film. And interestingly enough, he was also offered the opportunity to write RoboCop 2, but that eventually went to Frank Miller. And so it's just really interesting how, you know, he was involved. They were trying to get these great writers from comics. But this is a story I I found fascinating. Moore reveals the origins of John Constantine, debuting in Swamp Thing, right? And really simply stated, he said his artists just wanted to draw someone that looked like Sting into a comic. <laughs> He's like, what have you always wanted to do? Well, I want to draw a character that looks like Sting. Okay. And so he created Constantine as that character. That's pretty hilarious. Yeah. That's awesome. But it gets weirder because many of you know, you know, Alan Moore looks like an, a wizard, but he actually has a very mystical side to him. Uh, if you, there's actually a documentary about him. I think it's called The Mind of Alan Moore, and he kind of gets into things like that. But he claims he ran into a literal manifestation of John Constantine. Not Sting, but John Constantine, literally in the trench coat, with the hair, with everything, smoking a cigarette, at what was called a sandwich bar in Westminster, London. He's like, <laughs> funny story, that. <laughs> I love British uh, phrases. They crack me up. <laughs> And then finally, he points out that his 1963 comics project is his way of creating Marvel Comics of the 60s for the company run by artists who left Marvel, now defining the modern era of 90s comics. To him, he feels it's a very clever contrast. It kind of tickles him. And I know, Stephen, you took a look at some 1963 comics. I've sung the praises in the past. What did you think? So I, I bought this not too long after it came out. My grandma lived in Jamaica, Queens, and there was a bodega on the corner that did didn't sell magazines at all, but every now and again, they would have just like a box of comic books sitting right next to the counter for, you know, 25 cents, 50 cents each. And I bought some of those 1963 comics. And the one that I still have is Mystery Incorporated, which is kind of his Fantastic Four knockoff. And it's, I mean... The thing about it that is interesting is that it's almost exactly like reading a 1960s issue of a comic book. You know, it's very much Stanley, Jack Kirby style. But that's also what I think is it, its weakness in a way, because he doesn't put any original spin on it. It's just a straight carbon copy of that style. And even the letter section has letters from what you would think was 1963. So there's like a NASA scientist writing in. It's a fake letter to the editor section. Uh, so it's it's interesting. I, I like it, but it's not... I can see why it wasn't a giant success. It doesn't really move the needle in any way. Yeah, it's more like just an artistic experiment. It's like, how closely can you replicate that era, right? Because like, instead of Mr. Fantastic, 
Magic, you have Crystal Man. Instead mm-hmm. of the Invisible Woman, you have Neon Queen. And instead <laughs> of the Human Torch, you have Kid Dynamo. And then the Thing analog is called Planet. And he's got a big planet for a head. <laughs> but I personally, you know, I love this whole series because it was a six-issue series, but each book was an individual character. So there was someone called the Fury, who was basically the Spider-Man knockoff. There was a guy called USA, and he was basically the Captain America. You had Horus, Lord of Light, who was Thor, and you know, and then they had a bunch of other characters. But yeah, so it, it was a, a fun series because they ultimately like did kind of all reference each other, just like Marvel books would do back in the day. So you know they would drop the names, and so it felt like an interconnected universe. He never picked it up to my knowledge, except that there was actually an issue of Shadowhawk that I have, which is Shadowhawk 14, and it's called I'd Rather Be in 1963, and that is has all the 1963 characters with Shadowhawk time-traveling to visit them, and so it's very cool. Like, Jim Valentino was very instrumental in putting the project together with Alan Moore, so that's why they did that, but I just think, I, I think it's a great idea. I wish he'd do a little bit more with it, because maybe he could have done something, like you said, Michael, a little bit more creative. Interesting. Now, speaking of names that we hopefully still have heard from uh, all these years later. The next article is called 8 to the 4, and it discusses the rising stars that are taking over big books these days. So the first one is Greg Capullo. He is highlighted as the artist selected what I would call by the hand of Todd (laughs) to take over Spawn for three issues. Now, he was originally slated to do the Violator miniseries that interestingly enough, Alan Moore ended up writing, but he turned it down and Bart Sears, you know, wizard regular artist contributing artist there. He ended up doing that miniseries. But they claim at this time that Greg Capullo is best known for working at Marvel on recent issues of X-Force and that he had his longest run on Quasar for 20 issues starting in 1990. So like, you know him from Marvel. I was like, we don't know him from Marvel. (laughs) He's definitely that Spawn guy who did Spawn instead of Todd McFarlane. What do you guys think about Greg Capullo? Is he uh, someone who ended up in your log boxes ever in one form or another? You know, I know the name. I can't say that there's anything of his that I can pick out. I mean, I feel like you probably know the name like I know the name because he eventually takes over again for Bart Sears and he does the drawing section of Wizard Magazine for a long time. He's giving the art lessons. And like, I feel like his picture was always in like the top 10 hot artists in Wizard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm picturing is just his face in, in the Wizard magazine. So when it, when it came to the 90s, I didn't know who Greg Capullo was because I obviously wasn't reading Spawn or stuff like that. But in the last decade or more, he's been co- exclusively with DC for the most part. And he's done so much with Batman, with him and Scott Snyder. I have almost the entire New 52 run of batman and he does almost every single issue i actually met him briefly at new york comic-con one year super super nice dude like really down to earth just kind of like a dude just just hangs out and chills he's one of my favorite artists of all time i just think his his style is is so unique and it's just iconic to me in 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 a lot of ways his batman in particular is just so different well it sounds like there's a similar story then for this artist you'll tell me if his name stands out to you but at this time bernard chang is valiant's new golden boy he's drawing the second life of dr mirage which was interestingly enough 
enough on the cover of the first issue of Hero Illustrated, the Wizard oh. Competitor. Again, it's a character nobody knows about and nobody cared about at the time, but they really were pushing him as the next big thing. And Bernard Chang was the artist there. It was interesting. They said that he was going to architectural design school at the time, playing on his college basketball team, but also plans to stay in the comics field after graduation. Did he? Apparently so, because he was over at DC doing all sorts of stuff. Does the name ring a bell for you, Michael, of late? Well, not with DC, but with Marvel, yes, because he did a lot of covers and stuff for Totally Awesome Hulk, which is this <laughs> new, new Hulk character. He's done a lot of stuff with, you know, like uh, Zhang Chi and some Daredevil covers and, and things like that and a lot of art like that. But mostly I know him from Totally Awesome Hulk. God, because it's saying like, yeah, he did a lot of Marvel stuff in the 90s and then starting in the 2000s, he's over at DC and he's doing like Green Lantern Corps for quite a while. He's doing Nightwing. He's doing Supergirl. Like he was on Superman. I mean, he so he definitely had his runs on some pretty major titles. He, I do remember him on Green Lantern Corps. Yes. 2013 to 2015 is what it says. Yeah. Okay, so during the New 52. Okay, I didn't read a lot of it because like I started a lot of those books, but then they kind of went all over the place in the New 52, and I kind of bailed out. But I do remember him because I, I. Do you know who Totally Awesome Hulk is? I know you're not. I, I've never heard of that. I'm just learning about the Immortal Hulk these days. So Totally <laughs> okay. Awesome Hulk. So there's a, a kid. He's like a scientist. His name is Amadeus Cho, and he figures out how to do like the gamma ray serum. But he's like Professor Hulk when he's when he's the Hulk. So he's a genius, but he's also a kid, and it's very funny and very interesting. He's on the champions team or something like that, and oh, it's, okay. it's it's fun. Yeah, I've definitely heard the Amadeus Cho name, but yeah, yeah. that's cool. Now, Glenn Fabry is a British painter who seems to be like the young pup nipping at Simon Bisley's heels at this time, because he provided covers for Lobo's Back, the iconic Vengeance of Bane, and covers for Hellblazer at this time, speaking of John Constantine. But what I know him best from is he became the artist doing covers for Preacher once that title launches, and he's the reason I never picked up that book, because the covers were so intense and looked so <laughs> evil. And I was just like, oh, I'm never going to get this. But yeah, so Glenn Fabry uh, just doing those painted covers. And then Dan Fraga and Marat Michaels, they are protégés of Rob Liefeld. Oh. <laughs> they basically drew in less ridiculous proportions, right? They kept the same dynamics and same basic style of Rob Liefeld, but it didn't look quite as weird. And so, I, I don't know, like, he talks about them on his podcast, like, oh, they've gone on to do these great things, you know? And I'm like, I don't know the... I think Dan Fraga is more, like, on the animation side of things. Like, he's in, like, production stuff. And Marat Michaels, I guess, like, does Kickstarters to do his own comics all the time and gets them produced, so people like him still, but not names that ever stood out to me, and I don't think any of us were reading Image heavily enough to know or appreciate their work in Brigade or no. whatever else. How about this name? Christian Alamy? Anybody? He's been drawing Lobo like the interiors, apparently, and he's working on one of the Bloodlines annuals, as well as a four-part series with Chris Claremont. So he was this guy on the rise, but again, he's not anybody that I, I know of as, you know, oh yeah, you know, he's the staple of the industry. But there is a guy here named Derek Robertson. His picture in the interview is pretty hilarious. He's posed with a bunch of Mego dolls, and he's making this like crazy face. But he has been penciling new warriors for 
Marvel, and he originally started on an indie book called Space Beaver. You know, he had Space Girl <laughs> earlier, and he got picked up to pencil from that somehow, Justice League Europe, and then he's mentioning the upcoming for him is X-Men Unlimited number six, which features the origin of Rogue. So he's the guy who penciled the origin of Rogue when all her secrets were revealed. He also worked on Malibu's Ultraverse, designing all but two of the characters in The Strangers, which I don't know as much to be proud of. <laughs> but he claims he quit working on Nightman because Steve Englehart wouldn't give him co-creator credit for his contributions. But Englehart says it's not true. He had ideas and he was credited. Plus, in this issue, there's a full-page ad where Robertson's name is listed right next to Steve Englehart. So what was he complaining about? He, he said he wanted co-creator status. It seems like they gave that to him. So <laughs> There's a lot of controversies with this co-creator back and forth yeah. with, with various new characters at this time. And it's kind of funny that this was such a back-and-forth thing. Nobody, like, signed a little contract and said, hey, I worked with this? Oh, no, it's a handshake deal. Yeah, We know how that turned out. Just yeah. ask Bob Kane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Was there a Nightman movie or TV show? At TV, this point? Series. Yeah, yeah. TV series, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, so he wanted that sweet TV money. Malibu had all these plans, like they 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 said, like, oh, we're a multimedia company, we make movies and TV shows, and Nightman is like the only thing they ever made besides the Ultra Force cartoon, you know? I'll definitely check that one out. <laughs> now, Jim Ballant, there's a name we know. He is probably the most well-regarded of this new class. Especially he started doing like random work in Sergeant Rock. Some book called Evangeline for First Comics, which Matthew Sweet wrote a song about that character. I was like, I gotta go check that out now. She's on another planet. She's in my dream. She's some kind of angel, if you know what I mean. Try her on, and she fits like a glove. Too bad she only thinks about the Lord above Evangeline Evangeline I think I love you Evangeline Evangeline I love you He also did some Vampirella work for Harris Comics, which makes sense because he draws sexy ladies. That's what he does, man. I mean, Jim Ballant. They say, call his lines smooth. <laughs> Read into that all you want. That's one way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> he got his big break doing a Green Lantern story for DC, and then they immediately put him on Catwoman, which again, like we said, that's what he's most well known for. And I would say, you know, for me, someone who doesn't read a whole lot of DC books, it is my definitive Catwoman. I mean, he does a wizard cover featuring, you know, Selena Kyle uh, in the next year. It was actually recently on social media. He posted, he's like, I still have my original pencil drawings for this. I was like, whoa, that's awesome. The, the purple costume cover? Yep. He has the, wow, he still has it? That's he held cool. on to him, yeah. That's that's cool. that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite covers of wizard me, ever. Me too, bar none. Yeah, and if you've watched our, our recent uh, After Christmas special, you saw that Michael got a an action figure of Catwoman inspired by that design. I will admit I also have, it's not on display right now, but I have the Sideshow Premium Format of that costume. And I have, uh, and I, I sold a kidney to get that thing. <laughs> 
I have a couple other Catwoman statues of that same style and look as well. Not nearly as big or as expensive as the premium format, but I do have several different styles of that of that particular Catwoman. Yeah, so I mean, that was his stock in trade, and that certainly is his legacy. Even in the picture in the interview, there's a woman in a Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman mask, and she's like got her claws around his face, like all uh-huh. sensually. Um, but Ballant reports that he's also doing a Lita Ford comic, that being a fan of Lita Ford's music, she always like dressed up in these ridiculously revealing outfits, and I never knew why, because she just rocked. Like, she didn't need to do that. Uh, but I ordered that comic on eBay, because I just had to find out what the heck kind of story do you do with Lita Ford? But I'll be reading it while listening to her Dangerous Curves album, and uh, <laughs> I'm excited for it. But Jim Ballant's doing the art, I'm like, yeah, I'm all in, 100%. Speaking of art, Joe Quesada for this issue takes over Brutes and Babes, and he's giving advice on cover design. So it shows a bunch of the covers he's done for all the different companies, and so he gives composition and other tips for those aspiring artists out there. Now, Palmer's picks, talking about indie comics, is giving the spotlight to Jeff Smith's bone this month. And as far as origins go, Jeff Smith, they said that he was more of a comic strip reader than a comic book reader. Obviously, that shows, right, in his, his <laughs> influence there. And he created bone as a comic strip, more of this, you know, in his college newspaper. And back then it was called Thorn, which is the female character in bone. And Wizard describes the book as, quote, a Lord of the Rings style fantasy realm is invaded by cartoon characters. And at this point, Smith had only been self-publishing for two years after selling his shares in an animation studio that he founded so that he could self-produce the book, and he's gotten a lot of critical acclaim. Steven, is Bone on your shelf? It is not. It's almost like Mad Men, where I, I would always see it talked about and advertised in Wizard, and I just never got around to reading it. I also feel like the cover price was expensive. Yeah, it was an indie book, right? Yeah, it was republished by uh, Image eventually. So yeah, it was kind of a premium item. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's one of those books that is... It's still very revered in a lot of ways because it was such a unique book and... I never read it, but I but like the logo and and the character design is something you just you can't if you if you know anything about comics you recognize this particular look and this you know it's iconic in that sense. But I never read it either. Yeah, I mean, I, I I mentioned this in the past. I've read like the first probably ten issues in a trade, but it just it didn't keep my interest. Where I'm like, oh, I must get the whole saga. I must figure it out. Like for me, Jeff Smith, he did a book that was like this large format comic, like you know, bigger than like oh, I guess it was about the size of a Rolling Stone magazine, and it was called Razzle R A S L. Much more my style because it was about like time travel and like Teslas involved, and there's all this stuff. But it was it was a pretty cool book. If anybody ever wants to see a very different side of jeff smith to me i was like oh i like this but bone cartoon characters fantasy not for me (laughs) Uh, speaking of possibly not for me and maybe not for a lot of american comic book readers manga mania or manga mania i'm an american i say manga all right and when i get weird i talk like i'm from new york for some reason my apologies (laughs) to my friends over here that's accurate now it's uh 
This is actually the first mention of Japanese comics and wizard in any substantial form. Uh, eventually, it gets its own dedicated column and a spin-off magazine. And I believe somebody who was involved in that at one point is the writer of this article, Leah Hernandez. We actually mentioned her like way back when as being wizard's go-to informant for a while. Um, but she states that manga comics have been in American comic shops for 10 years. So why is the genre not more popular, she asks. She claims it's because there's less of a readership of comics and more of a quote speculatorship in the market these days and the conversion rate also of american comics readers accepting japanese comics is very low and much of it is black and white it just doesn't have the appeal of what the american comics reader is looking for she highlights a bunch of different companies that are publishing these manga titles whether they're bringing them over from japan and you know translating them or they've got some american manga that they're creating their own characters in that style i'll just mention some of like the random names here some people uh probably know Appleseed, the dirty pair the dark horse had was just about to release bubblegum crisis and of course there was for kids of the 80s robotech was over at eternity comics something called project ako and finally viz communications has mobile suit gundam for all you people like your mechs ranma half which th these are all titles that I remember because I would walk the aisles at Suncoast Video <laughs> at the mall and they had a huge anime section. And I'd be like, oh, what's this? What's this? What's this? Interesting. I have zero interest, but I'll read the back just so I'm informed. But they also, Viz Communications, had the license to my only love in the world of manga or anime, The Giver. I love The Giver. They made two American movies based on The Giver. Uh, it is basically, you know, kind of like Venom meets Iron Man is essentially what it is. But I love it so much. I did actually buy the comics from Viz Communications back in the 90s of The Giver. When I got into it, I bought all the dubbed, you know, VHS tapes and stuff. Like, I was super into The Giver. But for <laughs> you guys, manga, even anime, like, did you cross over? Give it a chance. I never read a manga book, but I do like Cowboy Bebop as a movie or TV series. I do also like Ghost in the Shell. I recently watched the Alita Battle Angel live action movie, and I really enjoyed that. And I kind of want to go back and, and see the, the animation and the manga, but I just, I don't, I don't understand a lot of manga stuff. And I've, you know, walked through Barnes and Noble and I've flipped through books and it just, it's hard for me to fully get it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, as I've mentioned before, I briefly worked at Midtown Comics in Manhattan for like a month. And I will say the only time I ever saw girls in that store is when they were buying manga comics. <laughs> it does seem to be the realm, right, of the female comics readers. We've been having that debate and discussion of magic words, right, over many issues. Where are the female readers? They are going to the specialty shops and buying manga. That's what yes. they want. Yeah. Whenever, whenever you go to the comic conventions also, they're always dressed as, as manga characters. And I'm like, I don't know who these people are. Well, it's cutesy, right? Like, that's the difference. Like, manga and anime, like, they generally have a more cute vibe to it and so i think that turns off those of us who like spandex and tough guys and gritty stories and whatever else you know would you classify voltron as an anime oh for sure yeah okay then yeah i like voltron yeah <laughs> we all do that was the big one right what about uh scott pilgrim is that kind of manga style yeah 100 percent yeah i think meant so. to ape it okay. yeah 
Because that's something I love. I love the Scott Pilgrim books. So Yeah, they are good. I do like them, too. Yeah, so spe- speaking of weird stuff, though, uh, Leapin' Lizards <laughs> is, a, is an exploration of Jack Kirby's bizarre Marvel comic called Devil Dinosaur that only lasted nine issues in 1978. Then it was un- unexpectedly resurrected in the 1987 miniseries Fallen Angels. Have you guys ever read Fallen Angels? No, but I know a lot about Devil Dinosaur. Okay, well, this is good. So we're going to ask you all about it. Because, yeah, Fallen (laughs) Angels, for those who don't know, it was like a weird X-Men spinoff miniseries. It had, like, Kitty Pride, Devil Dinosaur makes an appearance with his buddy Moon Boy, who is the first human, as he's touted on the cover. But, yeah, and I read the full Fall... Because it's a perennial, uh, you know, quarter bin book, Fallen Angels. Nobody liked it. It was kind of weird. I totally forgot, though, that Devil Dinosaur was in it. Like, it made no impact that there's all these human characters and a giant red dinosaur i don't know how i missed it so this is the question i have for you michael then so what has been the legacy of devil dinosaur now so essentially devil dinosaur is a mutant and is an x-men and basically devil dinosaur and a character named moon girl have been in the x-men books for the last i'd say almost decade now and a lot of the big team-up books they're always in, and it's just, it's always there. It's kind of like, you know, Lockheed and Kitty Pride, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl are always together, and they're always classified as mutants, and they travel together, and they go on adventures with, you know, ancillary teams like Forge and other X-Men characters and stuff like that. Yeah, see, I, so I, I had always heard of Devil Dinosaur. I had seen, like, news here and there, Devil Dinosaur's back, like you said, like, over the last decade or so. And I was like, who is Devil Dinosaur? So I finally went back and read the first two issues on Comixology this week, because I was like, I want to see what Jack Kirby was doing with this. And yeah, and, like, I could see maybe how it wouldn't appeal to everybody, because it's, yeah, it's set in prehistoric times. You have this hairy ape-looking guy named Moon Boy, and he befriends Devil Dinosaur, who gets burned in a volcano. Volcano. That's why he's red. There's all these other dinosaurs that are the standard greens and browns or whatever else, but he got burned in a volcano, so his skin turned red. And they have like this bond and they fight like these this evil warrior tribe and giants and all these other creatures that come in. But it's like there's something about Jack Kirby comics. He just gets to like the base like feelings of humanity and like and yes it's like people saying like yes we must crush him and destroy he brings fear to us you know it's like it's like this caveman talk but at the same time it was actually very engaging and not just for the art like it's like it's almost philosophical in the way moon boy approaches the world and that's why they said i, I believe it was Anne nascenti in the fallen angels uh, story that said yes they're mutants that's why they were so smart that's why devil dinosaur could understand english that's why you know that moon boy was more eloquent than other prehistoric humans at this time so yeah so it's it's a really interesting concept if you're not read early devil dinosaur eh, worth checking out <laughs> and, and if you want to read the reboot in 2016 there's a six issue miniseries is now in trade called moon girl and devil dinosaur and it's really, really, like, I read the first issue. It's very cute. It's, like, fun. It's good for kind of 
all ages kind of thing. So, like, if your kids want to be introduced to it, it's kind of a fun little story. Now, uh, the next article here is someone you've all definitely heard about. It's called Doomsayer, and it is an interview with Dan Jurgens about his monumental work on the death and return of Superman comics and his future plans. So, this is really interesting. Jurgens reveals that in the 70s, he had a dream of becoming a comic book artist and writer, but all comic book publishers were being predicted to go out of business. That was everything he kept hearing. He's like, oh, the comic book industry won't exist by the end of the decade. And he thought he would never live that dream. But then the direct market of comic book stores, that concept took off and kept it alive. And he was at a comic book store signing where Mike Grell, who most recently we've been talking about Shaman's Tears, (laughs) he, he was writing war lord for dc at the time and he showed mike grell those sketches and he hired him dan jurgens became the artist on this sword and sorcery book and then after that he went to do some fill-in issues on superman stories and then just never left like they just kept him drawing superman for all this time and of course most recently you know we had the doomsday storyline we had all these supermen coming around in the reign of the superman and so he mentions that it was roger stern who had come up with with the idea of who would be revealed as the cyborg Superman, this character named Hank Henshaw, who Jurgens had drawn and had pl- helped to plot out and said, oh, we always plan to bring him back. And then Roger Stern said, well, he should be this guy. Oh, yeah, that'll work great. Now, they also mentioned that that was the past. So what are they doing with Doomsday and Superman now? Well, there's a rematch in Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey that was going to be released one year from the date of the death issue, Superman 75. You know, he's like, oh, we wanted to have the rematch right then. But it wasn't ready. Editor Mike Carlin said, hey, gotta wait. So it'll come out in February. So that's like, everybody's waiting for that. Plus, Jurgens mentions he is heading up the Zero Hour event in 1994 because he says, again, kind of what we were talking about last issue where there was a whole discussion about did Crisis work? Well, obviously, in his mind, it didn't. And so he said, we got to fix a few more things. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna do a whole new event that's going to reset some stuff. It's going to work out. You guys are going to like it. Also, he says he's planning to do a creator-owned book at Malibu called Deuce. Yeah, it was uh, interesting to, to kind of hear where Dan Jurgens was at at this point, because he's he's kind of this guy who's almost, how would you put it? He, he's like, he's revered, but he's not flashy, right? He just, he does great work consistently, and that's it. Is he still at DC? He does books every so often, but like... I, DC's kind of in a in a bad way right now, and uh, it's kind of hard to say like who's still there. Like a lot of people are sort of jumping off ship every once in a while. Uh, it doesn't. I mean, the last thing that I really recall him doing was these. There was two books that came out toward the tail end of the New Fifty Two, and he did a book called Superman, Lois, and Clark, and it's how they brought the pre-52 Superman back, and it's probably one of my favorite story arcs in all of the New 52. And then there's another story called Future's End, and Future's End is like kind of like how the universe was starting to begin to collapse, but Superman himself is gone, and Shazam picks up the mantle of Superman, and it's really, really good. That's awesome. Oh, wow. I love yeah. that concept. Yeah, for me, Dan Jurgens, like, yes, obviously, Death of Superman, all of that, but I know him from Ben Riley, Spider-Man, getting his own book, the sensational Spider-Man. Dan Jurgens designed that costume and, you know, was the artist on it, you know, for the first few issues. 
music, so I always got excited about that. That is, I mean, I know you, I know you love that look. I do love that look as well. The the funny thing about that design, though, they've kind of, in a lot of ways, sort of bastardized it in certain cases. Because when Doctor Octopus becomes Spider Man, they kind of make the Superior Spider Man costume look a lot similar to that. The Mayday Parker costume, right? Spider Girl, definitely almost the same exact costume, essentially. Yeah. So well, it had to live on because Ben Riley died. You got you, you can't waste <laughs> a Dan Jurgens costume design. He's back again. <laughs> oh, good. Your, your boy is back. Yes, he's <laughs> he is. All right. Well, I, I will get the details on that soon enough. But Michael, you know, we're all hoping we can get back to theaters someday. But in the old days, there wasn't that problem. So why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion? So first up, it is our sad duty to report that we did not deliver a bonus review of Meteor Man in December, as promised. But we're going to have a Meteor Man review as soon as we can. Adam has the novelization, the comic, and other vintage promo materials to share when we do this podcast about Meteor Man. Yes, when the time comes, yeah. So the next thing that's up is there's a new season of Batman the Animated Series episodes coming, and it's going to be featuring Bane, Harley Quinn, Raj al Ghul. Do you guys say Raj or Raish al Ghul? Like, I, I just say Raj. I know a lot of people say Raish. But... Yeah, I say Raj as well. I, I mean, the animated series called him Raish al Ghul, and that's kind of how I thought it was until the Dark Knight trilogy. And now I kind of just go back and forth depending on how I feel. But I, I'll go with Raj al Ghul, sure. And even Jonah Hex. And that's... Is that the episode where where he goes back in time to the old west or i think is... they said he was an old man version of jonah uh, hex so it's supposed to be like him of the modern day because there's a flashback where it's jonah hex as a young man in like early days gotham as well in the animated series that i, remember. I, I feel like he appears more than once i don't remember that episode the bane episode i remember, I remember being a big deal yeah, and then they they do Bane again later on when it becomes the New Adventures of Batman, and mm-hmm. it's not nearly as good. <laughs> that was uh, a noticeable dip in quality when it went from yeah one to the other. So next we have Marty Pesky Pasco, the comic book veteran who a few episodes ago we said was writing on Roseanne and made Darlene a comic book fan because she had a Sandman poster, right? Is that what it Uh was? And it's reported now that he's producing the new Spider-Man animated series on Fox. But I thought that was Avi Arad that did the Spider-Man animated series. I know, yeah. He must have been like another one of the producers on that. Like Avi Arad's probably executive producer or something and then... Everybody wanted their their toes in that show and get some money out of it. <laughs> Todd McFarlane has created a new urban superhero character called The Pulse. 
that will appear in a feature film produced by Quincy Jones and distributed by Warner Brothers, who also reportedly tried to produce the Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, and Justice League projects that we all know and, and are revered in comic book film history. <laughs> it's sub-reality. Yeah. Uh, we asked Stephen to look into this. Any luck finding any of these plans about any of these things at all, Stephen? None whatsoever. I found a Variety article that said basically the same thing that, that Wizard says, but I couldn't find a single piece of information about the Pulse. I would love to know more. Well, if we ever get Todd on the show, we'll ask him all about it. <laughs> there, there, there was years later, though, talk about a blue and gold TV series on the CW that also never became a thing. Yeah, there was a Blue Beetle like test reel, right? Yeah. Which was awesome. I mean, I, I would love to see, and especially at this time, Blue Beetle and Booster Gold were so much fun. That'd yeah, be a great but the show. test reel, that was for like the modern day one with like the alien suit, right? Yes. Not Ted Cord. Yeah, this would have been probably Ted Cord and, and Booster Gold, obviously. But the show that they wanted to do on CW would have been Blue and Gold would have been Ted Cord, Booster Gold, and... I think Jaime Reyes would have been on there as well, like, at certain points. I don't know how, but that's what I've heard. It's kind of confusing because Blue Beetle was killed by Max Lord, who we all know is the villain of the Wonder Woman 1984 <laughs> movie. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, that is Heroes in Motion for this issue. And, Stephen, what do we have in Punisher's Price Guide? So surprisingly, there are no X-Men titles in the top 10 hottest books list this month. But somehow, Ren and Stimpy number one remains securely on the list. Go figure. I actually did own this issue, so I'll defend Yeah, me Ren too. I mean... <laughs> Along with Beavis and Butthead comics, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. But the Comic Watch section suggests that Uncanny X-Men number 244 may become a hot collectible, given that it is the first appearance of Jubilee, who has a starring role in the Fox X-Men animated series. Is Jubilee's debut still worthy of fireworks? We're going to find out if the book is a fire star, having risen significantly in value, a firestorm, maintain the same value, or a burnout, having dropped in value. Let me ask you guys a question. When did your iconic Generation X TV series premiere what year was that february of 1996 okay so jubilee would have been around about three years by then well no 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 because because this book this x-men 244 it's it's from the 80s it's from like the mark silvestri era. oh it's, it's I'm, late I'm just, 80s i'm having a brain fart for some yeah reason. so you're, you're probably thinking like you know generation x you know and yeah, yeah then she was in the x-men books in the 90s but yeah she actually existed before then which is pretty cool that's what i thought okay don't ignore me. Don't don't mind. Me. I've had a couple glasses of wine tonight. I'm I'm out of it. I might I might grab a beer soon just to just to join in. I, I have a mini fridge that's too far away from me that I can't get to. You need your Mister Fantastic powers. I really do. So anyway, in 1993, Uncanny X-Men 244 had recently risen to a value of seven dollars, and now, as of December 2020, an ungraded copy is selling on eBay for twenty four to thirty dollars. Congratulations, Jubilee or Heather McComb. You are a fire star. <laughs> 
Heather McCombs probably signed plenty of those issues, I'm going to imagine. It's well, actually not that bad of a price. I mean, like, it's not that ex- 24 to 30 bucks for the first appearance of Jubilee. It's that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, it actually, one of our listeners, 50 Cent Comic Collector on Instagram, he actually has two copies that he just shared the other day, which I found fascinating. He's got a hell of a collection, let me tell you. He really does, yeah. uh, Now, maybe the first appearance of a character is considered a gimmick, but some of these companies just had to take it a step farther. It's time for Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go. How bizarre! So there is a new feature in this issue called Speak Up, which focuses its debut discussion on the topic of gimmicks, bonus or bogus. I thought that said bagels or bogus. <laughs> Getting hungry, too. Huh, I am. Hey, man, we got Long Island. We're out here. You know, we need bagels in our lives. <laughs> They're good bagels. They're very good bagels. So what they did was they ended up interviewing what appears to be two brothers, 22-year-old Brian Habing and 24-year-old Brad Habing, both of Champaign, Illinois. And they are interviewed about their thoughts on gimmicks as they're being presented at this time, right? And so they... Basically, their opinion is that we know that some of the companies are taking it too far, but if it's a good book, then we think it's justified. You know, if it's a good book inside, then you just gave us something that's extra fun, which is kind of what Todd McFarlane was mentioning recently as we reported. You know, if you like what you read, then you got a bonus. If you don't like what you read, then you fell for a gimmick. But this is what Brian had to say with that. He says, I agree with that. I think the cost that most consumers don't think about, apart from the gimmicks, is that first of all, the new people that would be interested in looking at comics would pick up the ones with gimmick cover. A lot of times, it's on a crappier title. And so their first exposure to comics costs a lot of money, and the book sucks, and you lose them right away. So I was like, wow, that's a very insightful thought, right? It's like, the, as much money as they were making on people buying two or three copies, they were that was a one-time deal, which is why they had to keep doing it over and over again. And at the same time, they're driving people away that might get interested, you know, in a good story if they could just do something to get their attention and also provide you know something that gets you involved in the the universe that they're trying to present and get you coming back for more did you guys think of a particular gimmick that you were like okay it's a gimmick cover but i also like what's inside for me the first gimmick that i really remember grabbing me and i actually really liked the comic was robin to joker's wild when you know joker's holding that hologram robin card just those holograms in the 90s were just so cool <laughs> And I've, and I've since, you know, I think I had almost every issue and I was missing a couple. I found them in, in the dollar bin of my comic book store and I and I read the whole run and I, and I really enjoyed it. It's 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 really fun. There was one gimmick that I went for and was actually really a good payoff during Final Crisis, though I don't like Final Crisis as a story. There's a tie in book that's about Superman and it's all in 3D. And it is so good, and the 3D is so good. It is, it could have been its own story in itself, but it's like a, a three-issue tie-in book to it. I forget exactly, but it was 
fantastic, and the whole thing is all in 3D. And it, like oh. big splash pages, you open it up, and it's just like this whole like meta, you know, weird multiverse kind of a thing, which is really cool. Now, for me, you know, we were just talking about Simpsons, you know, the Bongo comics, and when Bartman number one came out, like, I would have picked that up no matter what. In fact, before the Bongo comics one came out, you know, I did buy the Simpsons comic that was kind of the precursor to their whole line of comics. And so if it was going to have Bartman, I was going to buy it. And actually, in the interview, they kind of talk about that, where they say, like, well, how do you feel? Like, how would how about enhancements on books that you would buy anyway? Do you appreciate the enhancement or do you find it annoying to have to pay the extra for something you regularly read and they basically had like the the same opinion but i i thought that the this guy brian brought up a really good point which he said or you have the square bound books that marvel or dc puts out for four dollars and 95 cents and the only difference is that they put nice covers on them and they square bind them you have the annuals now that are three dollars and 95 cents there's really not any difference between putting on a cover gimmick and putting in 30 pages of backup stories and pinups or putting it in a slicker paper or square binding it. The fact that the cover gimmick is raising the price isn't changing what I'm buying. It's a question of whether the price is higher than what I think the story is worth. You know what an annual costs now? <laughs> I just bought an annual that was like like $7.99. Oh, wow. It's brutal. It's brutal. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's some of them are great. Some of them are not good. But now, like, DC's also been doing the black label books. And they're all these oddly shapen stories that are like 12 by 10 inch paper and thick. You can't fit it into any kind of board or a comic book box either. They're, they're literally oh, like yeah. like graphic novels, essentially. But they're cool. They're beautiful. But they just can't put them in anything, which is annoying. Yeah, they actually call out. Brad here says... I think the cover gimmicks can be overdone. For example, take Shaman's Tears number two with the eight-fold cover, which we recently showed on our YouTube channel. The way that comic is billed is that it has the world's largest cover rather than really good stories. I think Mike Grell caught a lot of flack from the whole thing, and the next sequence of ads said, quote, the best Flargan story on the racks. Well, it's too late, Mike. You already showed us what you were really doing. Poor Shaman's Tears. Whenever you mention Shaman's Tears, it feels like something that would be a joke title for a movie in an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah. It does sound very overly dramatic, yes. Well, we're going to go see Shaman's Tears tonight. We're going to get front row. Let's go, Jerry. Come on. <laughs> well, well, well de- every time you guys say death blow on your podcast, I, I think of the Seinfeld episode. We're going to yeah. miss the death blow. Yes. Uh, last thing here that I'll mention is... They bring up what is ultimately the real value of a cover and why you don't need a gimmick. Because they say, I think the first thing you see when you pick up any book is the cover. And that is why I think the cover is important. Look at Hellblazer right now. Glenn Fabry, hey, there he is, is doing the covers. They are beautiful. People might want to pick up the book just because they see the cover. I think that an attractive cover is more important. But if the enhancement is really gaudy and the book costs a bunch more, people aren't going to have anything to do with it. So if like it's a very obvious gimmick cover right that it's like ah, we know you're just trying to jack up the price of the book especially after several years of the publishers doing it but if you're just giving us fantastic art on the covers which eventually becomes what you know like alex ross doing a cover michael how many alex ross books have you bought that you've never opened the book i have lost count <laughs> uh, i mean there 
in particular, like, you know, you'll do your reader copy and you'll have your other copy. So he was doing a run on the Justice Society of America in 2009-10-ish. I bought two of every single issue, one that would go right into a bag and board, one that I would read. It's a fantastic story. They bring in the Kingdom Come Superman into the into the universe, and it's amazing. But those covers, oh my god, they're breathtaking, to say the yeah. least. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like, ultimately, you know, we've had the discussion that we hate when it doesn't match on the inside what's on, you know, but that started with Alex Ross doing Astro City covers in the 90s and everything else. Like, he's done it for long enough that we know, okay, an Alex Ross cover, we know it's literally just a cover. And we know why we're buying it, because it's beautiful. It's not going to match the interior art. That's fine, you know, unless he's doing one of his special projects. So, yeah, I think that's kind of the gimmick that ultimately it came back around, right? It's like, it's not a special printing process. It's not shiny. It's just good art, whatever form that takes. Yeah, I... I just recently he's doing a, a run on in Marvel where he's doing all these white background just headshot artwork and I bought Medusa, I bought Invisible Woman, I bought Rogue. I, I I can't even tell you how many I bought and I haven't opened the single cover. Just <laughs> literally <laughs> bought it right into the sleeve. It looks beautiful. I don't care. One of these days, I hope and this is how nerdy I am. I really hope to go to a comic convention, just like Steven said once, like, you know, I had 10 bucks and I spent 10 bucks on this one thing. I want to go there with like a thousand bucks and be like, <laughs> I want that piece of Alex Ross art and just buy that and go home. <laughs> there you go. That's Someday awesome. if I can do that, I would be probably the end of my collecting career because my wife would kill me, but <laughs> it would be awesome regardless. But worth it. We're, we're, we're worth dying for, yes. for something. Yes. I'll be living with that and myself in my car for the rest of my life. There you go. Fulfilled on some level, yes. but yeah, all alone with your art. Um, so <laughs> a very bleak, bleak existence. No, but next up here, the Revolutionary Comics mentions in Wizard News that they are considering collecting their Kiss comics into a die cut leather bound edition with a raised metal logo to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the band. Also rumored is that they want to include a CD and a written introduction by the band. Now, this never happened. I was going to say, I'm like, you're our KISS expert. You would know this if it happened. It's very impressive, the idea. And the KISS themselves have produced many books, you know, that, that were quite fancy but mainly this didn't happen if i understand the history correct because on the cover of these kiss comics by revolutionary comics it says unauthorized kiss is very litigious they protect their trademark there is no way they were going to be in business together with these guys unless revolutionary paid their licensing fees so i'm sure that gene simmons had sent them several cease and desist things and this was like their make good they're like well what if we did this big thing to celebrate your anniversary well we'll do it up real nice i'm sure gene simmons is like stop calling me yeah, for sure stop calling He's, me i'll buy you a company <laughs> <laughs> zen intergalactic ninja 
has a chromium cover it's an issue zero jay lee oh we know jay lee uh he's he's kind of uh old news by this point but it's one of those things where i mean he's like he's the next big thing but at the same time i'm like did he stay even over like a six-month period being a big thing but yeah the zen intergalactic ninja wanted some of that jay lee hype and finally we actually missed mentioning this last episode in our discussion of the mighty magnor that issue number one steven actually called us out after the fact he's like you guys hating on Gru <laughs> you reading some Gru Steven I liked Gru as a kid <laughs> and I was telling you like we had a shed in our backyard that my brother and I and our neighbor used to keep comic books in and we had some Gru comics in there alright somebody was reading we'd read Gru we liked it, it was, the it only was Gru that I ever knew was from the Minions from the Despicable Me <laughs> and I don't know anything about Gru <laughs> but what they were doing for their new project, this Mighty Magnor, is they offered the world's first pop-out cover. So what does that mean? It's like a pop-up book where you fold out the cover and a whole scene pops up with like layers and layers of characters in this whole setup here. And we are actually, we're going to be covering it on our YouTube channel as part of the new Gimmicks Grab Bag series because I did pick up a copy. So I'm very excited to share this with everybody because that's pretty unique. I mean, you make a pop-up book out of the cover of your comic. So we're going to see how that really played out. It's a out. coffee table book about coffee coffee tables <laughs> but we're we're not placing our bets on the mighty magnor but how about this michael why don't you place your bet with gambit's deck of cards Marvel Masterpiece Series 2 is coming out, guys. Joe Jusko is not the artist, though. Wizard mentions that this set has mighty big shoes to fill. Did it live up to the previous set? What does our panel of judges say? I actually really love this set. I had a bunch of these cards, almost all of them, I want to say. And I thought that the main heroes weren't done that well. Like, the Spider-Man card was a little bit disappointing. But, like, the I, that Daredevil card card is one of my favorite Marvel Masterpiece cards that they ever made. The Iron Fist card was great. The Psylocke card, I, I remember, uh, I was a big fan of. Spider Woman, Cannonball, Domino. So I really like this set. I couldn't pick them out of a lineup, so I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't know. The problem is, when I go to the baseball card store, I'd buy, you know, a pack of baseball cards, pack of football cards, pack of comic book cards, and I, they're somewhere in my basement, and I could tell you I have no idea what I have and what series they are at all. No idea. You were buying football cards? Oh, yeah, football. dude. Oh. Dude, I love football, but I was obsessed with Bo Jackson as a kid. Like, he was my hero. And I was trying so hard to find, like, every Bo Jackson card I could possibly get my hand on. So. Okay. I'll try not to judge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. So, uh, you know, we said Joe Jusco, he is not the primary artist on it. He did do some of the cards, but it's not to the same standard as what he did with the original Marvel masterpieces. So, yeah, like Steven was saying, it's kind of a mixed bag where you have stuff that almost looks like Bill Sienkiewicz type art. Some people like his paintings. I've never enjoyed his art. It's just really wild and like stretched out characters and really like scratchy, you know, like so. So I, you know, I, I look through 
my binder and I'm like, you know, it, it wasn't as impressive because it didn't feel as cohesive. And that's why I appreciated later on they got the Hildebrandt brothers. I think that was for the next set. And they did a beautiful job, but it, everything feels consistent and of the same world. So it's like, oh, you know, what if they were illustrating an entire comic in this style? This is what the characters would look like, you know? So for me, that's why, like, Series 2 really fell flat, even though I bought them just because I was like, Marvel Masterpieces are awesome. But then I was like, nah. <laughs> not as revered in my in my grouping of, of cards here, of which I have many. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I got to start looking through my, my stuff and see where I have all these cards. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what I actually had and if they're even worth anything. Probably not, but, you know, who knows? Anyway, the Max is getting his own trading card set and having not yet learned their lesson from the angry letters written by readers, Wizard announced that every copy of issue number 28 will feature an exclusive The Max Chase card. No mention if there will be a Max as a bunny chase card, though. <laughs> Did you have any of these The Max cards, Adam? No, I, I wasn't. Like I said, I, I've watched The Max on MTV, and that was about as far as I went with him back in the day. Same. Me too. I, I watched the cartoon show on MTV, but beyond that, my knowledge of The Max stops there. It was basically like, okay, The Max and Eon Flux were on, I fell asleep, and that was it. <laughs> As reported in the last issue, there is an ad for the Deathmate trading cards, which surprisingly promotes both sets by Upper Deck, Pyramid, and Tops. Another crossover between two giants in their industry. Eventually, Pyramid kind of just fades out. It just becomes Upper Deck by itself, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, because it existed as their non-sports cards, but I don't think they produced many non-sports cards after this experiment. Yeah, I don't think so. I think it was just Upper Deck after this because I've never seen the logo of Pyramid at all. Comics Future Stars is a trading card set featuring art by no-name indie artists who debut original characters that likely were will never get a comic produced. So let's go out and buy them, guys. That's a great idea. Kind of a backwards method of launching a trading card set, if you ask me. The tagline should be, hey kids, buy these cards of heroes you've never heard of and will never see again. (laughs) Oh boy. Okay. Lastly, Dark Horse Comics' Greatest World is getting a trading card set, which features barbed wire X and more. Adam has been reading the barbed wire omnibus on Comixology. So what do you think of it? Well, I'm sure you guys are going to cover the Pamela Anderson barbed wire movie eventually on Patreon. I personally did not see the movie. I ignored barbed wire comics because, you know, I didn't really have much interest in anything Pamela Anderson did. Liar. What? (laughs) I didn't watch Baywatch. I didn't like... I remember her being on Home Improvement, and uh, that was about it. I still watch Baywatch. (laughs) There's There's a full Baywatch channel on Pluto TV. I know. I flip it on every once in a while, and I'm just like, I, I would probably watch Baywatch Nights, but you can't find that anywhere. Hasselhoff just Baywatch. has to be embarrassed, I guess. I don't know. Oh, it's it's all on YouTube. I've, I've, I've oh, really? worked my way through it, yeah. Oh, good. At, at least the episodes you're looking for, which is season two, when it yeah. becomes like X-Files ripoff. <laughs> That's all on YouTube. But yeah, so Barbed Wire, though, I grabbed one of the 
Comics Greatest World Issues at a quarter bin called The Machine. And when I read it, Barb Wire was in it as a quick cameo. And so I thought she was really well written just for the few moments she was in there. I was like, maybe I need to give this a shot. So I went on Comixology. I've been reading it all week. And it is a really, really good comic. Like, just in terms of, like, the art is great. The storytelling and the characters, the way they're all laid out. Like, in The Machine is like this, I don't know how you want to say it. He's kind of like a tragic figure. He's like this soldier who got turned into this creature and genetically altered and connected with technology and, and all this stuff. But Barb Wire herself, you know, is just like, like, yes, she's drawn sort of sexy, but not over-sexualized. And she's like actually smart and tough and cool, like in the comic realm that she lives in. You know, there's the whole thing like, don't call me babe, right? Like that was the big thing I thought was her catchphrase. She says it like once in the first issue and never says it again. So I was like, oh, okay. I thought that was going to be a bigger deal. But I, I really, really have been enjoying it. Like I said, again, there's a certain, like, house style that Dark Horse had for, like, I liked, like, their stuff on the Mask comics, and it's very reminiscent here in Barbed Wire as well. It's kind of a sin. They, they did, like, trade off pencilers for different issues, but mostly it stayed consistent. So if anybody is looking for, like, is Barbed Wire worth a read? It really is. Like, you'll get involved. And they have some pretty cool, like, evolutions of characters, you know, that start out one way and then they get a new sets of powers or they take on new roles as villains in different ways or heroes you know so yeah barbed wire gets a thumbs up for me you know it was one of those things that like I've, I've seen a lot of the art of the comic i never read it but it looked really cool so when we get to the movie to talk about it maybe we'll have to read the first issue or something like that just to see how they yeah. compare and now, let me ask you a question. Around the same time as Barbed Wire, there was another female comic book movie that came out called Tank Girl. Where do you guys stand on Tank Girl? I find it largely unwatchable, and I've tried many times to watch it. It's unwatchable, yes, it is. Uh, I think, like, my cousins had a hotbox in Queens, and we watched it on a pay-per-view, and it didn't work. And then recently, it was on Amazon Prime, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give Tank Girl a try. And man, it's just like... <laughs> It's difficult. It's difficult. It is. It's really difficult. I'm just like, how does the girl from A League of Their Own make a movie like that? <laughs> I feel like she was, wasn't she like a last minute replacement? Because I remember all this Tank Girl casting drama in the pages of Wizard. Ooh. We'll get, we'll get to it. I don't yeah. know. I, th I thought she was the girl, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. I it, feel like someone else was there and then like she was like the last minute replacement. Interesting. Interesting. We'll have to find out and see in, in the future pages of Wizard. So that's game. Gambit's deck of cards. Steven, what do we have? Azriel's action figure fury. Marvel is sponsoring a Midnight Suns contest through Wizard where readers have to create a custom action figure of Ghost Rider, Blaze, Doctor Strange, Morbius, Blade, Vengeance, or Lilith. Three grand prize winners get original art from a Midnight Suns comic. Other winners receive a signed Ghost Rider Rise of the Midnight Suns trade paperback or Spirits of Vengeance number one signed by Adam Kubert. When you say Blaze, do they mean Johnny Blaze? Yeah, because at this time, he was just getting his own series called Blaze, and he was back. 
So, so they had a blaze and a blade at the same time. That is not well thought out. I'm sorry. Their their marketing needed to be like this doesn't make sense. Well, and it's interesting because it, you know they're talking about making custom action figures. The reason is in the toying around section, like they used to post this like top ten most requested action figures, and Ghost Rider was like always at the top of the list, and they didn't produce Ghost Rider. Like eventually, Toy Biz does a whole Ghost Rider series, but not until like the late nineties. Like they, it really took him a long time. I'm surprised he wasn't part of like Marvel superheroes, you know, like in, in their their main line. It, it, it took a while but it was like out of nothing he didn't have a cartoon series he didn't have a movie they just said ghost Rider, here he is yeah and those commercials were really cool they have like a whole you can find them on youtube they're specific ghost Rider toy biz commercials really yeah they never played action figure commercials in my neck of the woods on tv there was never commercials for anything and i see them on youtube now i'm like batman figures all this like and i never saw them they're so cool looking that's so strange the only ones that i can really remember off the top of my head as the you know the, the dark knight action figures the freaky versions of batman and, and that like silver batmobile we saw a lot of those by uh-huh. us also the, the superpowers commercials used to run all the time yeah that's true yeah those, we those were the, big they were big now you know what i was just thinking about when i was thinking about i'm totally going off topic and i don't <laughs> even care but like i was thinking about blaze and blade in my head and i'm like how come no one ever made an american gladiators comic book they had laser and yeah and night like that those like built to be a comic i feel like <laughs> i don't know why now i'm looking yeah i was gonna say <laughs> if we could find evidence of it but i think they were pretty tight with that license it's like we'll make a video game we'll make some action figures some trading cards some power bars some candy bars essentially of, of american gladiators but i yeah i don't know that they because i think there was some talk that they were gonna at least like try to do like a movie or something yeah that's what i thought there was supposed to be a movie at one i feel point, like we yeah. heard mention of that way back when but yeah it just seems like taking it beyond maybe they just had a hard time with developing it they're like these nerds aren't watching our show we don't want them in that comics <laughs> <laughs> those but toys anyway, were awesome they were awesome they're oh, man, really they cool were... toys i'm sorry i interrupted you steven anyway no, go no, on. no. <laughs> talk about american gladiators all day uh <laughs> So, so next, Todd McFarlane is in negotiations with Mattel to make Spawn action figures. McFarlane said the prototype Violator figure has a bloody heart sitting next to his feet. Interesting that he had not yet jumped into producing the toys himself yet. Yeah, speaking of Todd. Hey, I think it's time for Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. So Todd actually gets his own column in this issue called Ego, and Ego stands for Everyone's Got Opinions. And so it's interesting, though, because this is actually an ongoing column that he gets for quite a while. This predates Rob-servations, so he was the first one to get there. And he has basically a whole conversation, you know, with himself um, (laughs) about speculation. And so he starts off by saying... 
the pigs of the industry are the people that are starting this gluttonous market. Oh, man. I mean, he's just going after them right away. And he says, in my opinion, most of the pigs who are coming into this business are either coming in from the outside, from the card market, or are borderline good retailers who are now getting greedy. Unfortunately, I wish I could solve all the greed in business and in the world so we could have perfect harmony. But since I can't, we can just hope that the pigs go away. <laughs> and then he just, he basically takes that like and just expands it out, says pigs several more times, and kind of breaks down what he feels that they are doing to, again, we got some more damage control here. Damage control! Damage He's like, all these guys have raped and pillaged the card market, got greedy, and thought they were going to buy an island off of Tahiti somewhere. And now, after they destroyed that business and left it in a crumbled state, they've jumped into our business. And the only difference is that we've been around for 35 years with independent stores and distribution, which I can't say is the same for the card market. Anyway, so yeah, so he's he's pretty intense about it. He obviously told Garab, he's like, Garab, I got something to say here. I got to get it down on paper and give it to the readers and we will check back in definitely with Todd as the issues go on everybody's got opinions but we're only gonna hear his for now <laughs> can I just ask you a question about Todd McFarlane and this is again an- another tangent like we were talking about the comic book show that public access show in Philadelphia and I shared with you a picture of Todd McFarlane standing at a podium addressing a crowd for a Q&A and he's not wearing a shirt at all he just has a gold chain on what was going on with him in he the was 90s? doing a lot of these appearances it's actually like if you look at these convention things in future issues of wizard when they cover stuff like yeah he would wear costumes and he would do every time he would speak and he would have some big showpiece and that was like you know what he was doing to make his point so that was yeah that was par for the course for him at this time he was being a showman it's so it's just so weird and and now uh, you know it's funny though now he sits in his office in like on the floor and does these cell phone videos premiering all of his action figures (laughs) (laughs) well here's the thing though he's obviously a genius dude because he's the guy who did it right like he's the guy who went into business for himself just continues to be successful he got the idea he's like you're not the workhorse for 30 years you create the brand you create the concept and then you just market it in all fields and then you create a market where you're the best you know at action figures and you get everybody's licenses and then everybody complains about how all your figures look great but they fall apart but they still buy them anyway it's it's interesting how that works it's almost the same thing as the image founders are artwork right it's like it's great artwork is the storytelling great no but we're still buying it because it looks awesome i've recently bought a bunch of the dc universe mcfarland action figures and the one thing that really annoys me about the figures every single one of them they have this weird articulation on their feet like you can actually take the foot and tilt the toes up but there's like a big gap in the foot it looks strange <laughs> like like if you're gonna pose them in any way you gotta do it so it looks like the foot isn't bent in this really awkward way otherwise they're pretty cool but they're very hard to articulate like i'm like afraid to move them too much because i'm afraid i'm gonna break the arm off when i try to do it so it's like i'm, I'm a little nervous about it and i took them <laughs> out of the box because i don't care they're yeah. now we've been talking a lot about todd but you know this is jim lee's segment too and going back to his interview at the top of the show one of the things that he took time to explain was the reason for the change from Gen X 
to Gen 13. And for those who don't recall, in previous issues, there was a big two-page ad. It had been solicited as Gen X for quite a while. And then all of a sudden, they switched it over, even in this issue. Same two-page ad, but instead of saying Gen X, it says Gen 13. Otherwise, identical ad. So Jim explains that... The reason for changing the name to Gen X to Gen 13, quote, At first, Marvel claimed it was similar to Generation X. Then they claimed it was similar to Genetics, a book in the Marvel UK line. What was Marvel doing? What the- we have all these Marvel UK books, you guys are infringing on our copyright. Anyway, and I didn't put that X there to fool the kids into thinking that this is a mutant book or something. I just thought it sounded cool. We decided to change it to Gen 13, which stands for the 13th Generation of Americans. So, there you go. Now we know how Gen 13 came to be, and Marvel just being a little fussy again. I also think that part of that stems from Marvel still really, really unhappy that all of their best writers and artists, you know, kind of up and left the company and started For their own sure. company. So, so kind of a stick-it-to-you kind of a way, any, they, any way they could. Alright. Also, it should be mentioned here, we've been getting some updates throughout the magazine. We haven't been mentioning them heavily, but Todd has been added to the guest list of Comic Fest 93 in Philadelphia, which we will be covering in a special bonus episode for the Retro Network's Comic-Con month. Yep, this month is Comic-Con month on the Retro Network, so be sure to check out all their comic book-related content. But we have a special guest who is going to be joining Stephen and I, who actually attended the event in 1993, has photos that he personally took. It's going to be awesome. So we can't wait to, to share some of our own con stories and get his experience and uh, tell you what Wizard had to do in the promotion of that. But rounding out this segment then, this issue, Jim Lee manages to get eight mentions. Todd has seven. That brings our total to Jim Lee, 165 mentions. Todd McFarlane, 146. Now here's the question though. If Todd's got his own articles now, wouldn't every word of his be his? mentions i don't know they only get one tally mark per article that is focused on them so the name appears 30 times yeah (laughs) and now we're ready to close out the show with another installment of robin's reading rainbow Just a reminder, we record these for our YouTube channel, so this is an edited version for audio. If you want to see the full version with scans of the pages, as well as a little bonus after discussion, be sure to go to YouTube and check out Wizards Podcast. But now, let's start talking comics. Today, we have a very interesting comic to discuss with you, and uh, I don't know if Michael's even prepared for what we're going to discuss today, because it's... (laughs) It's it's another one of those, you know, you had to be there. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so uh, for those of you who have been following the podcast the last few episodes, uh, we have been talking about Warriors of Plasm from Defiant Comics. 
Defiant Comics was a company that was headed by Jim Shooter, a name that is probably familiar to fans from the old days. And in the 90s, he had a kind of a resurgence. So just quick recap on Jim Shooter. He started writing comics when he was 13. Mm. DC Comics started buying stories from him. Then he eventually graduated and started writing, you know, complete books Then he moved over to Marvel and was very prominent there until he actually became editor-in-chief. And then he kind of left under some circumstances. He he was very instrumental in solidifying Marvel's kind of business side. You know, he was able to merge the artistic and the business and get dependable comics coming out. But the artistic people didn't like it. And then eventually the (laughs) business side didn't like what he was doing either. Couldn't make anybody happy. He was out. And then in the 90s, like I said, he came back with Valiant Comics started focusing on storytelling, really got a lot of uh, reputation, especially Wizard Magazine, right? Made Valiant very popular uh, with comics and mainly a kind of old school readers, it felt like. But then he got kicked out of Valiant. Who knows why? Jim Shooter is either the unluckiest man in comics or he is secretly a monster. Hard to say. (laughs) You know, the problem seems to follow him. So there's something going on, I think, with Jim Shooter. But either way, he started Defiant Comics as kind of his last attempt, right? He's like, I'm going to do this. I'm defiant to all these publishers that have kicked me out. I'm going to show them how it's done. And thus, Warriors of Plasm became their flagship book that was going to be coming out with art by David Lapham, who had done a lot of stuff at Valiant for him. But then what happened, Michael, as you recall, who was not happy with Defiant Comics creating a book called Warriors of Plasm? So vaguely, from what I recall, is Marvel, his aforementioned company prior, made a little bit of a stink about Warriors of Plasm because of a U- Marvel UK story called Plasmer, or Plasmer, if you want, however you want to say it, which, based on the two covers, seemed totally different. <laughs> and that, that's why we wanted to get into Plasmer. Now, in our timeline of 1993, Plasmer hadn't even been released yet, and Marvel was still suing Defiant because they said Plasma and Plasmer sounded too close, and they, they sued them. But the courts found that Marvel didn't have a case. We decided we need to do a little investigation ourselves. Let's find out what Plasma is about, and then we'll compare the two. So, Michael, what could you explain in a general sense that was your takeaway from Plasma? Essentially, the story of Plasma is about a girl who she's either infused with other minds, I think. Is that, do you have any idea what this is even about? So I, I had to read it a couple times. I read it once and I was like, oh no, I can't read this again. It doesn't take its time at all getting no. into the action. And yet the explanations are very few and far between. But what it comes down to is there's a woman who is working for this seemingly like secret, I don't know if it's a government organization or just like this, you know, evil cabal called Mistech. Her name is Ulog Malarkey. Did you get that at all from reading the book, Michael? No. <laughs> you don't know her name hardly. Somebody calls her Malarkey. One time, oh, what's up with that Malarkey? Again, these are Marvel UK comics, just to make that clear. This was produced for the Marvel UK line of books. And she is infusing herself, like you said, it looks like she's hooked up to something technological. As I did my research and further understood the world, it was all magic. She was trying to infuse herself with some sort of magic powers because- Well, essentially she's a wizard? 
something. Hey, <laughs> one of us, get her on the show. Come on, Malarkey, we're ready. But yeah, and so ultimately what happens in this experiment is that she separates into two beings, okay? So That's why there's a multiple, okay, now I understand, all right, because I was so yeah. confused. I was like, what is she being? Yeah, the original separation is her human form now is 100% evil. And they say that, like it's she's 100% evil, the the human form but she has kind of hit you over the head with that one that she's yeah like and then the form that is made of plasma i guess whatever this this ethereal kind of essence that comes out of her they say is a hundred percent good that's all her good so her two parts of her personality have separated and now the good part is discovering what her powers are because she's essentially sort of a new being Mm -hmm. that is trying to figure out who she is so what are some of the powers you could identify michael she had some sort of like tornado type of a thing that she was doing or like <laughs> cyclone something or other i don't know yeah i mean she she kind of looked like a cyclone version of the electric gremlin you know for gremlins 2 she's just kind of like this being that could like shoot out a fist you know and then yeah she, that was like her first form it was sort of like gaseous yeah, yeah. Some sort of vapor, I guess you would call it. Uh, What else did you recall that she was able to do later on in the story? What is, like, she's standing in, like, a a witch's kind of, like, pentagon, like, uh... This yeah, th- right so here. that was part of her ceremony. She's, she's got like a, pe- a pentagram. She's like yeah. strapped to this thing. And yeah, so whatever evil essences were able to separate those two parts of she, her. She's apparently got martial arts abilities as well. Like she can fight all of a sudden. And, you know, she's... Well, that know. comes with any superpowers, Michael, of oh, course. Uh, <laughs> she goes invisible at one point, right? She goes... She's like got invisible woman powers all of a sudden. Yeah, she's got vapor powers and then invisibility because she says she stretches out herself so thin that she's practically invisible. But she says, I better be careful or I might never put myself back together. So that was one element. But then Ooh. there's kind of a... yeah. There's kind of a shocking moment where you're just like, wait, wait, wait. Because, but what does she turn into? She turns into some sort of like monster, right? Like a like this like green giant demonoid monster that's kind of like a. Uh, she looks like Hulk 2099. That's what she looks. She like. looks a little bit like that, but also kind of like um like a white Martian, but green. From yeah, the- like a big long head. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what's strange about that is that, so she figures out, you know, that she could duplicate herself. Her plasmatic form can separate into duplicate beings, but each time that happens, she's 50% than she was before. So each duplicate gets stupider and stupider. And at one point- Multiplicity? <laughs> dozens, yeah, little versions of herself. And they're all running around. You know, it's kind of like Army of Darkness, which you haven't seen, Michael. Yes. But there's all these little Ash, you know, Bruce <laughs> Campbell's running around, you know? And then that's eventually like, they jump together and turn into that weird Martian creature because she's- running around the facility where she worked, right? And so eventually the guards catch on to her. They're like, what is that thing? You know, they shoot it and they fight her. She can't control the body very well because she's not used to it. She falls down. So those are like her powers that she just starts like working at and taking on all these different forms. But eventually as she pulls herself back together, she says, my body could no longer contain the energies that are in me. So it's creating a form that it can hold the energies. And how would you describe the official look 
of Plasmer. So I guess you would describe her humanoid look as the female wrestler version of Cable. <laughs> you know? She's like if if China and Cable had become one. You know? There you go. I like that. Yeah, she's basically wearing like a Borat swimsuit that's yeah. hot pink, very revealing. She's super like muscly, like upper upper body, super buff. She's got long, like super shaggy black hair and the white eyes. Yeah, that kind of glow. And that and that's her. That's her standard look. Ultimately, that's her heroic form. I so guess you would. Let me it. ask you a question. How long did this book run for? Only four issues. Oh, and so, you know, Marvel's gotta sue Defiant over a book that ran four issues. Well, they didn't know yet. They, this could have been their next big hit. This oh, could yeah. Have been hit for 1994 or whatever, you know, it officially hit the stands, you know? Now, there was one character there, Michael. I don't know if you caught a look at a character who was on fire, Okay. Yes, I did see that. I also noticed that Captain America popped up in this comic for for no apparent reason. Yeah, so he was talking to a man who they said was the oldest man in England and had been working behind the scenes as a strategist for all these years and apparently Cap knew him Mm -hmm. from way back when. But that's what's weird. In the Marvel UK books, I've noticed, because I've looked at a few you know, over the years, like I got an issue of Death's Head 2 here. Mm -hmm. Weird stuff. Like they had, because it was Marvel, they could officially have guest stars from the Marvel Universe show up. So Captain America's in there. In the next issue, Captain Britain and the Black Knight from the Avengers show up to assist her. So like that that kind of stuff was pretty common. They would have, you know, the X-Men and Wolverine show up and team up with their super team. So that was what they did. But this character... That was on fire. I have to believe so, in the guest star role, they wanted the Human Torch, but didn't get approval or something. So, like, before he goes on fire, he looks kind of like a little bit of like the Jason Todd when he's when he's in Hush. He's got, or, yeah, he's got that jacket on, yeah. Or um, what's Etrigan's human form? Um, oh yeah jason so, jason blood also, i think right? or yeah something like that he kind of looks like a combination of those two characters before jason todd even but it, that's what it looks like and maybe a little bit of like the punisher in, in a way and then all of a sudden he like manifests into this flaming being and takes off and i'm like okay <laughs> Yeah, then he breaks into the facility. He has a meeting with some head of the facility. Like, he just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. But they drop a really significant piece of backstory that made me curious because they say, oh, yes, we know you. You're Captain Kerosene is his name. Captain Kerosene, you ghosted for the android Human Torch back in World War II. So he impersonated the Human Torch in World War II. So then I went back and looked i'm like is captain kerosene a character like a golden age no Marvel universe character he is not they created him just for this series but i love the name (laughs) captain kerosene it just makes you think that he pours kerosene all over (laughs) just lights himself on fire yeah that that's his power like i don't understand it's like the stupidest name maybe it sounds better in england i I almost like i wish they would have established like maybe his pores sweat out kerosene and he can just light himself on fire (laughs) What a weird power. Yeah. There's got to be an origin story, and I don't think they ever told it, because I looked... Like he he appears like it's four issues this thing. Who- <laughs> yeah, but then there were other Marvel UK books, and he made like two more appearances and an appearance in an, an official Marvel six sixteen universe Captain America book. Huh, interesting. Years later, somebody interesting. read this book. It was like we should put Captain Kerosene in here. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So, you know, then just by the end, just to wrap up the story, because as much as we're giving you is about as much as the story was. Like people yeah. just pop in, oh, here's this person, here's this person. There's not like an overarching story where we know 100% what's happening other than there are sleeper agent monstrous creatures created by this Mistech Corporation or Cabal, whatever they are, and they're starting to wake up. So now Plasma talks to the oldest man in England and he says, you have to go and defeat them. They're activating them now. That's the cliffhanger ending is this like giant monolith type of, you know, creature is roaming the streets of London and she's going to battle him. But then you have to wait till next issue. Yeah. And I would assume that because it's only four issues long, a lot of people didn't make it to the second issue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's one of those things. So here, Michael, that we've read that book. Now let's, let's ask ourselves. So Warriors of Plasm, I will, does it take place in England, in London? It does not. It takes place (laughs) in space, in a world that is uh, a living organ, and these people live inside of it. Oh, right. You talked about that on the podcast, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see any large, like very strong, muscular women barely clothed? Nope, none. Yeah, you you won't find them inside either, okay? You know, there's just a bunch of people in armor. The art is actually better. (laughs) Yeah. There really don't seem to be any comparisons at all. I don't think there was any confusion, plasm and plasma unless you went into do you have that plasma book do you have that plasma book wait wait plasma or plasma plasma i want to read a plasma book okay i don't you just gotta enunciate that we know what you want to buy and and they wonder why marvel started selling off all their properties to keep themselves in business because they're having meaningless lawsuits about two different comics that aren't even related just because they have a similar word they're like yeah it became more about destroying the competition than creating product that gets you back to your glory yeah Exactly. Um, so while we while we go out here, Michael, let's give our final review that our score out of ten. How many how many points, I guess, would you give to Plasma? Four. Four points. Okay. So it wasn't the worst thing ever. It wasn't the worst thing ever. But it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't great. Mainly because I thought some of the art was good. I don't understand why we would be following a, a female villain as the, for the lead of the story. Like I just, well, that's the thing. That's why I bumped it up to a six for me because the storytelling was terrible. It wasn't arranged well enough to yeah, not at all. very well, but the concept of, you know, this character split in two and what she has to essentially fight herself, the evil version of herself. Yeah. That's a pretty cool idea. And if it, if it had been done by somebody like Alan Moore, for example, I bet right. he could have given us a, you know, or Garth Ennis or somebody that like, you know, does those kind of weird, like yeah. psychological or, take. Or even like a Neil Gaiman for that matter, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it wasn't the worst thing that we've read, but it wasn't great. I mean, whatever. It's a one-off issue, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> that does it for episode 27 of Wizards, a monumental episode to be sure. We are a trio going forward. This is so cool. We are excited, Stephen, to have you on board. Uh, cheers to you guys. I finally got my beer. <laughs> I'm I'm so excited to be a part of this. Thank you so much for having me. But we want to leave you all with a laugh this time around. And luckily, this issue contains a bonus bit of tomfoolery. So we present to you the top 10 taglines that were almost used instead of the guide to comics, according to Wizard Magazine. At number 10, Wizard. All models 18 years and older. Ah, damage control. Damage Damage control! Damage control! Damage control! <laughs> <laughs> a car crash sound effect for that one. <laughs> Ugh.
Uh, number nine, Wizard, the magazine's 65 million years in the making. A little Jurassic Park reference there. Yeah, really. This is the year. Number eight, Wizard, the guide to Todd. <laughs> It's <laughs> about right. Not, not far off there. Wizard tastes like fresh brewed coffee. <laughs> uh, number six. Wizard, buy us, you fanboy. I thought it said fat boy for a second. <laughs> yeah, they're interchangeable. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, I can't read. Oh, it's fanboy. Number five. Wizard, now scab free. Number four. Wizard, the soup that eats like a meal. <laughs> It's like they just went to the supermarket and wrote down a couple taglines. That would be like copyright infringement by even using that. <laughs> Marvel would sue if it was there. <laughs> yes, it was. Number three, Wizard, we kick butt over Ladies Home Journal, parentheses, Red Book 2. <laughs> Number two, Wizard, relax, it's not real blood. Huh? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> and number one, how come I always get these? Wizard, hey, full frontal nudity. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, we say goodbye and offer you this invitation. Why don't you join us on social media on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are adding new segments such as the Gimmicks Grab Bag. We have new episodes of Long Box Roulette and Action Figure Fury coming up, some of which involve Steven Sapella, so you can see parts of his collection. And of course, we have Wizards, the Patreon Guide to Comics, launching soon. So watch social media. We'll be sure to announce it here as well. And until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.